Well, this morning we are continuing a sermon series in the book of 1 Corinthians. We've called uh, this look at uh, 1 Corinthians a cross-shaped community, a cross-shaped community. And what we've seen over the course of looking at Paul's letter to the church in Corinth is his uh, constantly bringing up to them that the cross is meant to shape the way that they live their lives, the way that they love their neighbors, the way that they love one another in the church. You know, at times, Christians have been good at understanding that the cross means that uh, after death, we get forgiveness, we get eternal life. But we're oftentimes not as good at realizing that the cross has profound implications, not only for death, but also for life, also for how we live, how we love, how we think about ourselves, how we go about our daily lives. And so our hope through this series is that we would, like those first Corinthian Christians, come uh, to the cross to learn how to live, to learn how to examine our lives and to see what is more shaped by our culture than by the cross, what's more shaped by our pride than by the cross. And so uh, this morning, we are looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you are willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word? This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in, in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Thanks. You can be seated. One of my uh, favorite authors on the spiritual life is a man named Dallas Willard, uh, passed away not long ago, and he says this, God is always more interested in who you are, in who you are becoming, than in what you accomplish for him. God is always more interested in who you are, your character, your heart, and who you're in the process of becoming than any of the things that you can accomplish uh, for him or on his behalf in this life. And yet there is so much in our world and so much in ourselves uh, that rushes to uh, think that who we are is essentially what we accomplish, right? That what makes us who we are are the good things that we do or the bad things that we've done, the good that we do in our work, the good that we do in our families. We, we are so prone to identify with what we do and what people around us think of what we do their approval, their applause, their delight. We are so tempted uh, to define ourselves by what we accomplish instead of who we are. There was an interview with Madonna, the, uh, the singer. This is not the most up-to-date cultural reference, but an old interview uh, with Madonna in Vogue magazine where she describes uh, her life this way. 
She says, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again it happens. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre, and that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. You, know, you read that and you go, man, what a, what a crazy and awful way to live, right? What a dreadful way uh, to live your life, constantly trying to fill up this emptiness, this sense that you're not quite special, you're mediocre and trying to prove yourself to the world. But if your takeaway from that quote is, you know what, I always knew Madonna was crazy, right? She always, she always seemed a little off, right? If that's your takeaway, you have missed the point. Um, because I actually, I admire her for her honesty uh, in that. How many of us go about our work, our life, our relationships as though we're fundamentally out to prove to the world that we're special, valuable, not mediocre, worthy of their respect and love? Right? How many of us, that's the agenda behind our work. If we get to the next project, the next sale, the next, the next thing in our career, then my boss, my wife, my family, my, my neighborhood, they're going to know that I've made it, that I'm, that I'm worthy of their respect. How many of us believe that as much as we serve our children and love them, that, that really somewhere lurking behind that, there's this desire to prove ourselves to those around us by how perfect our kids or our family are turning out. How many, how many pastors, how often do I, Go about my work fundamentally from a desire to prove myself in some way to others. I think it's behind so much of the way that we live our lives. Can you imagine what it would be like to have a sense of identity, a sense of who you are before the world and before God that was so settled, so rooted, uh, that you weren't afflicted and, and weren't affected by the judgment or criticism of others, by success or failure, even by your own internal criticisms and judgment, that somehow deeper and more true about yourself beyond that, you knew who you were in a way that couldn't be shaken, in a way that couldn't be taken from you, that you knew you had nothing to fear and nothing to prove before others. Well, I think that is uh, the hope that's before us in this passage. I think that is what Paul is showing us the way towards uh, in this passage from 1 Corinthians. You see, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we start to get at the personal nature of Paul's uh, trouble with the church in Corinth. So far, he's talked about uh, the divisions that existed between them, how some followed one leader, others followed another. And now in chapter 4, we come to the fact that Paul, who planted this church, who invested months of his life in person in Corinth, establishing this new church, who'd spent years in correspondence and prayer with them, hoping for the best for them, loving them. He comes to realize that one of the things that's gone on in his absence in Corinth is that these very same people have started to judge him. They've started to be critical of him. They've started to look down their nose on him. Other teachers, other leaders have come through. And they started to say, hey, you know what? Apollos actually preaches better than Paul did. 
Or this other guy actually seems to be a little more pastoral and kind than Paul was. Or, or this guy, I like the way that he did it better than the way that Paul did it. And so they start to look down on Paul. They start to judge and criticize Paul. Now, I know if I were Paul, right? If I were Paul and I, I came to find out that this group of people who I'd invested so much in had started to speak so critically of me, I think I might get sensitive. I might get defensive. I might, I might start lobbing insults back. I might start trying to prove myself that I really am better than they think that I am. And yet Paul, miraculously, I don't think it's too strong a word, writes to them, and he does defend himself. But there's not a note of defensiveness. There's not a note of thin-skinnedness. That he shows us the way he writes to them with this incredible mix of courage and humility. Right? Boldness, strength, and courage and yet humility, two things that we are, are prone to think can't exist in the same person, right? We, we tend to think of people as either having a good self-image and being, you know, confident, even verging on arrogant, or we think of them as humble and meek, maybe verging on, on having low self-esteem. And yet Paul, when he, when he writes to the Corinthians, shows himself to be both strong and courageous and humble and meek. He's got, uh, as, as one uh, pastoral mentor told me, he said, he's got uh, both thick skin and a soft heart which we need uh, to do life in this world. And so uh, he shows us uh, the way to deal with this. First, let's look at the problem uh, with our identity as Paul understands it. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, uh, that you may learn from us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. He goes on at the end of verse 7 to say, why do you boast uh, as if you did not receive it? You know, this, this essentially is Paul's uh, prescription of the problem, not only in Corinth, but in all human hearts, uh, is boasting and being puffed up. Those are the two words that he uses here. Interestingly, Paul uses the word boasting 26 times uh, in, in all of his writings. Paul wrote much of the New Testament. He uses it 26 times, and 20 of them are in this letter to the Corinthians. Uh, 20 of them are his diagnosis of what the particular problem in Corinth was. Was that they were boastful, they were proud, they were arrogant. That they looked at themselves uh, in such a way that made them better than one another. They looked for reasons to consider themselves better, now even better than Paul. And he uses this incredibly evocative word to describe uh, this, this boasting, this arrogance, this bragging. He says that you've become puffed up, puffed up. Uh, it's the image, uh, you might picture the image of a balloon getting swelled up to the point of bursting. It's actually the, from the Greek word that means swollen or infected, right? Just like if you have an infection in your body, that part can, can I won't go into too much detail of what it looks like, but it can get filled up with stuff and it gets nasty, it gets infected. And Paul is saying that the fundamental problem uh, with the human ego is that it's diseased and it's swollen. And it starts to, to boast and to brag, and it becomes the friction point uh, in human relationships with one another. The human ego, we're incredibly easily puffed up and filled up and deflated, right? That we're, we're fragile uh, in our ego. One of the images uh, that I like to think of when it comes to, to what the human ego looks like, if you've ever driven by a car dealership, uh, and seeing one of those inflatable Gumby men that has the fan going up in it. And so one minute the wind comes up and they go, ah, 
and then the wind goes down and they fall down. Right? Sometimes, isn't that what it feels like uh, in our inner life and in our identity, that when something good happens to us, we get the sale, uh, we, something goes right in our relationships, we feel like we're nailing it as a mom or a dad, things seem to be going right, we get an A on the test, and we're puffed up, we feel great about ourselves. And then we get in an argument, or we don't perform well one quarter in our sales numbers, or we have a setback in our, in our personal life, and we're absolutely deflated. Right, that we're prone, our ego is fragile. It gets puffed up way too easily and it gets deflated way too easily. I had an exercise in humility yesterday. Um, I, uh, you've probably heard, I, uh, I coach a uh, flag football team for my oldest son. Undoubtedly, I'm, I'm pretty famous uh, in, in, in my own way for this. Um, no, but last year, last year we were really, really good. We had great kids. We won, we won games. The, la- the last time I remembered coaching football, last fall, we won the championship like 42 to nothing. We just dominated. Yeah, yeah, I was. So you leave that season and you think, man, I am, I am the Vince Lombardi of under, under 10 football. And then the same group of kids. La- so yeah, I'm feeling pretty good about myself, right? Yesterday, we went out there. Our kids all moved up an age bracket. So we kept the team together. We all moved up an age bracket. This is a group of kids that had lost like one game over two years. Guys, we lost 28 to nothing. We got, we got run all over. I'm, I'm, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm less Vince Lombardi and more Gus Bradley. or I don't, I don't know who the, who, the, who the antidote is there. And you know what? Can I, can, I, can I tell you something that doesn't speak uh, super great about my emotional maturity? I was in the dumps for the rest of the day. I felt terrible about myself. I couldn't rest. I was thinking about, man, what do we have to do to do differently? What do we have to do to these kids? They were so dejected. I was down. So what happened uh, to me over the course of those two games? Well, I found my identity, some small part of it, in my success or my failure, it's something that, don't tell my son, but really doesn't matter, right? It, you know, he's going to grow up and he's not going to evaluate me as a dad on whether, I prayed, prayed to Jesus, uh, on whether or not we won a flag football game. But right, it's not him, it's me. I attached a part of my identity, a part of that part of myself that I look out to the world to find out, am I good, am I valuable, am I worth it? And I attached it to something silly to start with. And so I, when I rode the upswing of last season, I set myself up for the downswing, right? That's the way that the ego works. It's like you're riding a roller coaster. If you, once it starts clicking up and you're enjoying getting higher and higher, you know it's going to come down at some point. And so the ego, uh, as Paul says here, is far too easily inflated and far too easily deflated. You know, what is better? To think too highly of yourself or to think too lowly of yourself? Tim Keller, uh, in an excellent uh, little book I commend to you called uh, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, says that in most cultures, in all traditional cultures, it was thought that the primary problem with the human heart was that we thought too highly of ourselves. Right? That the basic assumption, if you read any Greek mythology, right, that the fundamental problem with the human heart is pride. Right? It's, it's hubris. The fact that we, that we think too highly of ourselves, we reach too far, 
we oppress other people in our arrogance. And right, the, I mean, the ultimate, meaning, the, the ultimate meaning of so many of those myths is human beings uh, getting their, their just desserts in the midst of their pride and their hubris. But Keller says it's only been in about the last 50 years that we've come to think the opposite, right? That the fundamental problem in the human heart is that we think too lowly of ourselves, right? The basic problem in every human life is low self-esteem, that we need to learn, that we think too lowly of ourselves and we need to learn to think more highly of ourselves, right? So Keller poses the question, which is it, right? Do we think too much of ourselves or do we think too little of ourselves? Do we go with most human cultures throughout most of history or the last 50 years of psychological insight? And he makes the great point, and it's not his, I believe that it's Paul's, uh, and he actually quotes C.S. Lewis, uh, which Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, uh, that the, the ultimate answer, Christian humility, is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Right? That the problem isn't either an exalted sense of your own value or worth, thinking too much of yourself, or an empty feeling of low self-esteem. That the fundamental problem is self-preoccupation. Right? That we live our lives as though uh, we are fundamentally at the center of the world. And that we are ultimately what matters most. Uh, in the world. And some of us, uh, that, the way that that takes shape in our lives is thinking far too highly of ourselves, right? Boasting, being arrogant before others. But for others, it takes the form of extreme self-criticism, extreme self-doubt and shame. But it is uh, this self-preoccupation. Can you imagine what it would be like to be unself-preoccupied? I don't think that's a word unself preoccupied. Can you imagine what it would be like? Uh, let's say you just went on a trip to the beach with some friends and they took a group picture of everybody and then they showed you the group picture. What is the first thing you look at when somebody shows you a group picture? Right, yeah, our eyes go immediately to ourselves, right? We go immediately, how do I look in this picture? Did they get my good side? Did they get my bad side? Did I suck it in enough and pose just right? Right? You, you, our eyes go immediately to ourselves, and if we like the way that we look in the picture, we say, hey, it's a good picture. This picture turned out pretty well. Um, if we don't like the way that we look in the picture, we say, honey, don't put this on Facebook. This is, this, is not, this is not a great picture. The light looks wrong. It's just not great. But our eyes immediately go to ourselves. Can you imagine what it would be like to look at that picture and go, what a lovely group of people. We had such a fun day at the beach. This picture helps me to remember that day. To be unself conscious, to be unself preoccupied. How do we get there? Well, let's look at the way that Paul uh, responds to his critics, to his judgment here. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Paul says, I don't care if you judge me or if any other human beings judge me. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I have a very low opinion of your opinion of me. In fact, I don't even, I don't even care that much about my own opinion of me. What does he say? For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. It is the Lord who judges me. 
Essentially, I don't care how people judge me. I don't even care how I judge me. There is only one being in the universe that has the authority to judge. There is only one being in the universe who can judge, and he has already declared me innocent in Christ. I already know his judgment of me. And because I know his judgment of me, I can face your judgment, and and it really doesn't matter that much. I can even face my own judgment, my own shame, my own inner critic. And it doesn't matter because only God can judge. He switches uh, to using this language of judgment, which I think is an apt metaphor here. He's saying essentially he realizes that he no longer has to live his life as though he's on trial before in the whole world as the jury. That he no longer has to try to justify Uh, himself or prove his innocence, his goodness, or his worth uh, to a jury of his peers. He doesn't even have to prove it to himself uh, or to God. You know, this is, um, there's a part of what he's saying here that sounds something like what we hear uh, in our culture, right? It it is not unusual for somebody either in the church or outside the church to say, nobody can judge me, to say, I don't care what you think about me. Right, to say, I'm going to be me. I'm going to do me. I don't care about what you think about me. But if you're not careful, I mean, that's also the kind of thing that a psychopath says, right? I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care if you're hurt. I don't care if you're mad. I don't care if I make you sad. There's got to be something beyond just, I don't care what you think. Right, so that's where Paul uh, doesn't just say, I'm free from your judgment. I'm free from what you think. He doesn't just say, you know what, listen, Paul's going to be Paul. I'm going to, do, I'm going to do what I want to do. He says, no, no, I don't even judge myself. I'm not even in a position to be my own judge. I don't see my own life rightly. I'm not capable of seeing accurately what in me is, is, a, is applause worthy and what's con- condemnable, what's, what's righteous and what's sinful. So he said, even my own judgment of myself can't be fully trusted. So I don't even judge myself. And for some of us, that is where our biggest uh, problem lies with our identity, with finding a a true and rested identity. It's not in the judgment of others. It's in our own self-judgment, right? For some of us, the world doesn't have to judge us because we've gotten so very, very good at judging ourselves, that our inner critic speaks so loudly that any any slip-up in our lives, any sin that we commit, anything that's any bit from perfect, We heap up condemnation on ourselves. And Paul says, you're not in a position to judge yourself. You're not able to to be your judge, to evaluate your life in such a way. Because only, only God can judge. This is, friends, the beautiful and glorious gift of the gospel. That only God uh, is in a position to judge you. Only he is capable of rendering judgment. And he has rendered his judgment already on the cross, right? That in, that in crucifying the Son of God, God has satisfied his own justice for those who trust in Christ. This, friends, is incredibly good news. That you don't have to live in fear of judgment day, right? In and of itself, there's nothing that is good news about saying, you can't judge me and I don't judge myself, only God can judge me. Like in and of itself, that only leaves you with, oh no, 
God can judge me. God is going to judge me. God, the one who does see my sin for what it is, the one who does see not just my public sin, but my inner thoughts, that he will judge me. Right? In and of itself, that is not particularly comforting news. But when you pair that with the incredible good news that God has satisfied his own judgment on the cross, that Jesus has taken the justice of God that you deserve. And so you can know that judgment day isn't a dreadful day off in the future that you have to worry about, but that in Christ, your judgment day has already happened. Right? That your sin too was nailed to the cross, judged, condemned, and forgiven in Christ. Look at the way that Paul shows us what this creates in him. He says, you can't judge me. I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. He's saying, look, in my, in my relations with you, the Corinthians, I'm not aware of any sin that I've committed against you. But that doesn't mean that I'm innocent. right? That doesn't mean that I haven't sinned. It doesn't mean that I'm not flawed. Paul is able at the same time to admit his faults, I'm not thereby acquitted, but I'm also not judged. Christ has given him the freedom to separate his identity from his performance, his identity from his accomplishments. His accomplishments might rise or fall. Paul did incredible things in his life, more than most of us will ever dream of doing. And yet he also knew that he had also committed incredible sins. At one point he says that he is the chief of sinners. He is the very worst sinner that he knows. And he can say that at the same time, both of those things can be true. Loved, forgiven, acquitted, not judged, while sinful and flawed and broken. That in Christ, both of those things can be true uh, of each of us. You know, the great majority uh, of Christians link our identity in God to our performance for God, right? To use theological terms, we base our idea of our justification, our righteousness before God, on our sanctification, on our obedience to God. If we had a good day, if we prayed, if we didn't do the things we're not supposed to do, if we did a few more of the things we are supposed to do, then God is pleased with us. If we've had a bad day and we failed, then God is angry with us. Right? We separate, we, we link our performance for God with our identity before God. And what Paul does here is he, he reverses the order of those things. And this is what the gospel does for us. It says that your performance, the things that you do, your accomplishments from God, have to flow from your identity in God. Your identity is righteous, forgiven, and beloved. That out of that flows your faithful life, your obedience to God, your love of your neighbors that that flows from a heart that knows its identity as a son or a daughter of God. The way Paul puts it in the first two verses here is this is how one should regard us, is servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. A steward is simply someone who's been entrusted with something from another person and is responsible for it. So Paul says, I no longer do my ministry, I no longer live my life, I no longer love other people out of this desire to prove myself to them or to prove myself to myself or to prove myself to God. But then I live my life as a servant of God, a servant of Christ. 
one who's been entrusted with things from God and expected to, to be fruitful with it. Can you imagine how different your life could be if instead of approaching uh, your callings, your relationships, as venues for you to prove yourself to others and to God, if you're able to approach those things as, as venues for service, to say, I've been entrusted with everything that I've got in my life, right? What does he say? What do you have that you've not received? Everything you have is a gift. And to evaluate your life on how am I doing it, stewarding those gifts that God's given me. Not to earn God's favor, but to be a steward of what he's given me. Let's just look at a couple of different areas of our lives, and then we will wrap up. Think about how it would change the way that you approach your work. If, every, if you weren't trying to prove yourself to the world, to your boss, to, the, to, to your investors, if every bit of it wasn't a desire to prove that you matter by your success... But instead, you said, you know what, everything that I've gotten, any resources we've made, any, any money we've made, any employees that I supervise, any bit of this job I've received as a gift from God to steward for the good of my neighbors and for his glory. Right? You could work without a sense of pressure of having to perform or else you just prove to yourself and everyone else that you're a failure. But instead, out of a sense of delight to see what can we do with this? What can I do with what God's given me? for my neighbor's good and for his glory. If you're a kid to go into school, if you're a student, and not have to prove yourself to your teachers by your grades, not have to prove yourself to your parents by your grades, not have to prove yourself to your peer group by figuring out how to be cool enough to fit in, how to be successful enough to fit in, but instead to approach your school to say, God's given me a mind, he's given me an intellect, and I'm here to be a steward of it, to figure out how I can apply it uh, to the best of my ability for my good, for my neighbor's good, and for God's glory. In parenting, if you could be relieved of the pressure of having to raise perfect kids, kids that always perform right at church, who always sit nicely at the restaurant, and instead of feeling that, that pressure to be perfect, could sense the weight and the joy and the privilege of being entrusted with young lives by your father to be a steward of them, to love them, to invest in them, to see their lives flourish. You know, for some of us, uh, if I can be honest, parents, sometimes we function as though our kids are the judge and the jury, right? As though we, are, we can't stand to have them dissatisfied or unhappy with us. And there would be a freedom here to know, you know what, kids, you, don't, you may not like it. You may not be happy with my parenting in a given moment, but I am a steward of your heart. And I'm, I'm a servant of God, and I'm accountable for him, before him for what I do in your life. In your prayer life, imagine approaching God, no longer feeling like you've got to measure up and pray just perfectly, have enough quiet times, do enough so that God looks at you as a good Christian person, but instead to approach him as, as a child loving to spend time with their father. When you take the pressure of performance off, the pressure of judgment and rest, really rest, and knowing that you're not out to earn God's approval or the approval of others. Your life opens up in incredible new and gracious and wonderful dimensions. You know, I'll close with this. Martin Luther, uh, the great Protestant reformer, uh, lived most of the first half of his life terrified of God. 
He was, uh, he had enlisted in a monastery, prayed multiple times a day, lived this incredible life of self-sacrifice. And yet when he read in the New Testament, the language that Paul uses here of judgment, the righteousness of God, the judgment of God, he lived with terror. He was plagued with nightmares. He lived with this continual sense of being judged by God, this afflicted conscience that only and always judged himself. And then he had uh, the revolution, uh, the internal uh, change. His eyes were opened by God to see that the, the righteousness of God, as it's talked about in the New Testament, isn't a bar for us to measure up to, but a gift from God to us where he calls us righteous. Late in his life, uh, Martin Luther wrote a shorter catechism, a catechism that he wrote uh, for people without uh, his level of education, wrote it even for children. And it basically is an explanation of the Apostles' Creed. And he starts, the Apostles' Creed uh, says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. What does this mean? And here's what Luther answers. This man who was once so terrified of the judgment of God. As an older man, he writes, I believe that God has created me and all that exists, that he has given and still preserves to me my body and my soul, my eyes and my ears and all my members, my reasons and all the power of my soul, together with food and clothing, home and family and all my property, that he daily provides abundantly for all the needs of my life, protects me from all danger and guards and keeps me from all evil. And that he does purely out of his fatherly and divine goodness and mercy, without any merit or worthiness in me, for all which I am in duty bound to thank, praise, serve, and obey him. And this is most certainly true. The cross forever changes the way we think about God and the way that we think about ourselves before him. It really can set you free uh, to live a new life before God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, I confess, we confess, uh, that so often we do live as though the jury is still out on our lives. We live as though we have so much to prove to the world, to you, uh, even to ourselves. Father, pray that you would help us uh, to live this life that thinks neither too highly nor too lowly of ourselves, but simply thinks less of ourselves, whose eyes are more filled uh, with the vision of who you are and what you've done for us, whose eyes are more filled with the opportunities around us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Amen. Lord, we pray that our identity, our self-worth, would be rooted and grounded, not in the opinions of others, not in our opinion of ourselves, but in the incredible and gracious good news that we are your accepted righteous, forgiven sons and daughters. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.